I'm reading now again from my translation. And there was given me a reed like a rod, saying, Rise and measure the temple, or the holy place of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein, and the court which is without the temple, cast out, and measure it not. For it's given to the nations, that is, to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So that period that the Lord Jesus said that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, a great many people thought when Israel got Jerusalem, well, that was it. Well, it wasn't it, because to begin with, Jerusalem is still trodden down of the Gentiles. And all you have to do is to go over there and walk down the streets of the old city. And if you see a Jew, you let me know, because I didn't see any myself. All other races are there today. All other Christian groups are all over the place. They built holy places everywhere in the old city of Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem is trodden down. But now when you get into the great tribulation period, you've come apparently to the last half of it. Why, the times of the Gentiles will run out in 42 months. Now, that's one half of the great tribulation period. Now, we're told here that he was given a reed like a rod. Now, every time you see the beginning of measurements in either Old or New Testament, it indicates that God is beginning to deal with the nation Israel. Now, that was true in Zechariah, the second chapter. It was true in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. And I'm not going to turn there because we have studied that rather recently. Now, we find here that this reed is like a rod. Well, a rod is used by a shepherd, and it says in Psalm 2, 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that's for chastisement and judgment. So, what we're dealing here with is a measurement of time given for the times of the Gentiles, and then judgment will come upon them. Now, the rod is also for comfort. Psalm 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So that we have both judgment and solace in this chapter here. And he mentions the temple of God. And it's limited to the holy place. Actually, that's the literal here. And the holy of holies. In other words, the temple of God places us back on Old Testament ground, for there's no temple given to the church. In fact, the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit today. That is, believers are, not a building. And Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, "...in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit." Now, the altar here refers to the golden altar of prayer. The altar for burnt offering was not in the temple proper. It was in the outer court. Now, even the worshipers here were to be measured, if you noticed. He was told to rise and measure 
not only the holy place and the altar, and them that worship therein. They are measured. And God does count the number of those who worship him. And so here, the court, which is without the temple, throw out. And that excludes all that does not belong to the temple proper. The altar of burnt offering would be on the outside, and also the brazen laver. And since the altar was a picture of the cross of Christ, it would seem to mean that the gospel of the cross of Christ will still be available to all mankind during the intensity of this brief crisis. It's not to be measured, you see, because it'll still be available. And it's given to the nations, but it's limited to the 42 months of the Great Tribulation period. And as we've said, that confirms the words of the Lord Jesus. Now, 40 and two months is the period identified with the last half of the Great Tribulation period. And this is repeated again in the 13th chapter of Revelation, verse 5, for instance. And I think I'll turn there. It says, "...there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months." That's the last half of the reign of Antichrist here upon this earth. Now, that three-and-a-half-year period is mentioned again in the 12th chapter, verse 14 also. Probably ought to read that. And to the woman were given two wings of an eagle, that she might fly to the wilderness and to a place where she's nursed for a time and times and half a time. That's three-and-a-half years from the face are the presence of the serpent. And this actually goes back to Daniel. Daniel had a great deal to say about this period of time. For instance, in Daniel 7:25, he shall speak great words against the Most High. Now, that's Antichrist that'll do that. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And until Antichrist comes... We preachers are the ones that wear out the saints. Wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, for they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. That's three and a half, and it is three and a half years. Because, again, over in the twelfth chapter, we are given this in the book of Daniel. I think I'll just turn over and read that. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. And that is three and a half years. So that we have Daniel speaking of this also. And again, if you want another reference in Daniel over in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, at verse 27, it says, "...he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week." And again, that's Antichrist. "...and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease." Now, that week of Daniel is seven years, as we saw when we studied it. "...and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon him." So that we have now this seven-year 
period, which is the 70th week of Daniel. And we went into that quite thoroughly when we were in the book of Daniel. We come now to something else that's quite unusual. Now, I'm reading verse 3 in my translation, and this is the duration of the prophesying of the two witnesses. Will you listen to it? And I will give to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. There is a great deal of difference of opinion as to the identity of the two witnesses. And they're introduced to us here without any suggestion as to who they are. Godet makes this comment. He says, they are one of the most startling features of the book. And I'll certainly agree with that. Let's put down here an axiom or two. One is this. If the identity was essential for the understanding of this book, I think there'd have been some indication given about their persons. But it's always in these areas that the sensational preachers are, as Walter Scott put it, the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. Here's where they concentrate in places like this. They can tell you what the thunders said. John was told not to write it down. He didn't. And here we're given two witnesses, and everybody can tell you who they are. And I know that I'm going to get quite a few letters correcting me here as I take up the two witnesses. But may I say that this has led to, of course, speculation. Those that have espoused the historical view of Revelation... They've named such men as John Huss and Pope Sylvester and Wal Denson and the Two Testaments. So you see, you could come up with most anything from that viewpoint. But some of our men who hold the futurist view, and that's the view I hold, they're not in complete agreement who they are. Sice and Govay say that they're Enoch and Elijah. And the Gospel of Nicodemus contains the following statement, and I'm quoting, I am Enoch, who pleased God and was translated by him. And this is Elijah the Tishbite. We are also to live to the end of the age. But then we are about to be sent by God to resist Antichrist and be slain by him and to rise after three days and to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. Well, that's another interpretation. Now, Dean Alford and Walter Scott and Donald Gray Barnhouse state that they are Moses and Elijah. And William Newell does a very smart thing. He doesn't even identify them or attempt to identify them. Now, there's another possibility. They could be two unknown witnesses. That is, we don't know who they are yet. And they are human witnesses, that seems certain, from the description given of them. And two is the required number of witnesses, according to the law. Back in Deuteronomy 17:6, why we find that it's in the mouth of two witnesses. And did you notice that the Lord Jesus did the same thing relative to the church? For he made the statement... Over in Matthew, the 18th chapter, verse 16, he says, 
But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Always in Scripture it required two witnesses to bear testimony to anything before it was to be heard. So we can definitely say they are human beings and that there are two of them. And those are the two things that we know for sure. Now, it seems to me to be almost certain that Elijah is one of them. It was predicted he would return. In Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Then the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 17, 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things so that it would seem that Elijah is one of them. That we can say with a certain degree of assurance. But what about the other one? It's said in Revelation 11:4 that these two witnesses are two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And have you ever noticed that that was a favorite expression of Elijah? He walks out on the page of Scripture in 1 Kings 17, 1, and he says, "...as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand." These are two lampstands. They're lights in the world. And that is what we have before us here. And the presence of Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration further suggests this. But it would necessitate, of course, the second witness being Moses which is more difficult to sustain. And after all, the Mount of Transfiguration isn't the only point of similarity. Now, I want to make a suggestion, and that's all it is. I wouldn't be dogmatic on this, and I wouldn't argue about it. But I suggest that John the Baptist is the second witness. He was the forerunner of Christ at his first coming. He was similar to Elijah in manner and message, and I'm sure those two fellows would get along with each other. Both knew what it was to oppose the forces of darkness and stand alone for God against impossible odds. They sure have had good training in the past. John the Baptist would be the witness of the New Testament, as Elijah would be the witness of the Old Testament. And John the Baptist actually was not part of the church, the bride of Christ, but was a friend of the bridegroom. He wasn't a bride. He was a friend of the bridegroom. Now, it seems unlikely that Enoch would be one of the witnesses since he was a Gentile. And the very fact that he did not die does not qualify him for the office, for by the time you come here in the Great Tribulation period, why the church has already been translated and some of them were translated without dying. So you could pick your witness out of that crowd, whoever they're going to be. And so I would say with some assurance that it is Elijah, one of them, or who the other one is, your guess is as good as mine. All right, now we have a thousand two hundred and three score days. And the significant feature about the two witnesses is not their identity, but the time they appear. It is, I think, during the first half or the last half of the Great Tribulation period, which is right here. Well, to me, it would seem the first half, because they testify until the beast appears, and then they are martyred. And he appears 
in the midst of the weak as he is in his real character, the beast. And their clothed in sackcloth is the garb better suited to the period of the law than of grace. It's becoming to both Elijah and John the Baptist. Now I want to read verses 4 and 5 in my translation. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wishes to hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if anyone wishes to hurt them, thus must he be killed. Now, everything here is associated with the Old Testament, you see. We have here the lampstands, and we have the two olive trees. And that takes us back to Zechariah, the fourth chapter. Since it was not too long ago that we studied Zechariah, and I at that time told you that you'd need to know Zechariah to understand the book of Revelation, and here is one instance of it. These men are the lampstands. They're two individuals. Back in Zechariah 4, it was Joshua and Zerubbabel. And they were enabled by the Holy Spirit to stand against insurmountable difficulties. And the explanation is found in the words, not by might, nor by power, and we could translate that, not by brain, nor by brawn, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And therefore, Zechariah 4, 6 says, the Holy Spirit will be present, and he will be present during the great tribulation period. And these two witnesses are lights before the powers of darkness. These men are accorded miraculous power to bring fire down from heaven. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And here again is the suggestion in favor of Elijah, of course. And also John made an announcement, you remember, about one baptizing with fire. Now, these two witnesses are immortal, and they're immune to all attacks until their mission is completed. And friends, this does have a message for us. It does get down to the nitty-gritty where we are today. It's encouraging to know that all of God's men are immortal until he's through with them. That's one reason that I have had a very weak and feeble faith that during all of the trouble that I've had in this five-year program and the two-and-a-half-year program, I have had two operations for cancer, and the cancer is now gone, apparently. At least it hasn't appeared in several years. And I've had two major operations, first for gallbladder and then for the liver duct. And I'll be honest with you, there were times when I wondered whether I'd make it through or not. But I prayed to God and asked people to pray, and so many wrote and said, we're praying that God will let you finish the five-year program. Now, these men, as we said, are immortal, and God's men are until God is through with them. That's a wonderful comfort and thought for today, friends. And when he's through with you, he'll remove you. Now, verse 6, these have the authority, and this is exousion power, which is authority, to shut up the heaven, that the rain may not wet during the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood 
and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they wish. Now, this is the thing that has caused certain outstanding men to choose Elijah, for he's the man that stopped the rain. And also, Moses was the one who brought the plagues upon Egypt. And they may have good ground for that. But anything you say about the two witnesses is speculation, of course. Now, these two witnesses were granted, you can see, unlimited authority. They control rainfall on the earth, and they are able to turn the water into blood. That certainly reminds us of both Elijah and Moses. And they're able to smite. They're given the same power Christ will have when he returns, and we'll see that in Revelation 19.15. Every plague suggests the plagues Moses imposed on Egypt, but the plagues here are greater in number as the territory, of course, is more vast. And as often as they wish, that reveals the confidence God places in these faithful servants. Did you know God can't trust you and me with power, and he can't trust some of us with money? Apparently, he wasn't able to trust me with very much, and he doesn't trust us with power. That's the reason that many men are removed from office. God removes them from office after a period of time, and time's always on his side. Why? Because he can't trust man with power. And it's a good thing many of us do not have it. Now, verse 7, "...and when they shall have finished their testimony..." The wild beast that cometh up out of the abyss shall make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, they'll finish their testimony. And in the midst of the week, that's when Antichrist, who is the beast, who is the man of sin, who is moving to power, bringing back first the Roman Empire, and then when he gets the whole world under his control, and he won't hesitate to overcome and destroy these two witnesses. And at that time, he'll be permitted to do that. In other words, this is the temporary victory of darkness over light, evil over righteousness, hell over heaven, and Satan over God, because God is going to let Satan loose during this period. And these witnesses live up to their names. Marcuse is the word for witness. We get our word martyr from that. Now, verse 8, "...and their dead bodies shall lie upon the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified." Now, they're not even given a decent burial. And this reveals the crude, cold barbarism of the last days. It'll be covered with the thin veneer of culture. And that's ours today, by the way. There is a strange resemblance to the sadistic curiosity which placed two dead men, Lenin and Stalin, on display in Red Square in Moscow. The word used for bodies denotes the contempt and hatred the world has for the two witnesses. They're treated as dead animals. And the great city is Jerusalem, and it's likened unto Sodom by Isaiah. It's called Egypt because the world has entered into every fiber of its life, social and political. It is conclusively identified as Jerusalem by the sad designation 
where also their Lord was crucified. Now, verse 9, And out of the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations do some gaze upon their dead bodies to be put in a tomb. You see, after Christ was crucified, even Pilate permitted his friends to take down the body and give it a respectable burial. But not so with the two witnesses, for the world will be startled to hear that they're dead, and some will be skeptical. And apparently they'll have something that corresponds to a television camera, and they will have a satellite that will carry it all over the world so that people everywhere will be able to look upon the features of these for three days and a half. The morbid curiosity of a godless society will relish the opportunity of gazing with awe upon these dead bodies. And I think this is the worst indignity that a depraved world could vent upon the man who denounced them and their wicked ways. Now, perhaps the witnesses had predicted their resurrection. We're not told that, but they might have. And to prevent the possibility of another empty tomb, there was no burial. Just leave them out there and keep the camera on them. I think CBS and the other networks, NBC, ABC, and XYZ, all of them will have their cameras pointed on these boys that are dead. And three days and a half, there they lie. And then something happens. Verse 10, And the dwellers upon the earth rejoice over them, make merry, shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented the dwellers on the earth. Now, they have high carnival on the earth. The world engages in a modern Christmas and Mardi Gras, both rolled into one. And the world has adopted the philosophy, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Dr. Newell describes it like this, Now comes the real revelation of the heart of man. Glee, horrid, insane, inhuman, hellish, ghoulish glee. Mankind rejoicing over the death. And they're going to send gifts one to another. They are going to make a lovely occasion on the surface. But this is the devil's Christmas. The modern celebration of Christmas, I think today, gets farther and farther from the birth of Christ and closer and closer to paganism. And the day will come when it will be anti-Christians, almost that now. And here is the celebration of what Antichrist has done, rather than the celebration of the coming of Christ to Bethlehem. Now, in verse 11 I read, And after the three days and a half, the breath of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them that beheld them. You see, while the world is celebrating in jubilation the death of these witnesses, and the television cameras are focused upon them, the witnesses will stand on their feet, and all of the networks will regret that they had the cameras pointed to them, because they didn't want to really give the news as it is. And they stood upon their feet, This is the scriptural word for resurrection, by the way, of the tribulation saints who have part in the first resurrection. Now, I suppose that any news like this would be a scoop, but 
I'm sure that all of the networks would have their cameras on. Now, by that time, they may have some new gadget that makes the television look very much antiquated and out of place. Now, verse 12, And they heard a great voice out of heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and the enemies beheld them. Now, they're caught up into heaven. You see, we have the resurrection of the two witnesses in verse 11. We have the ascension of the two witnesses in verse 12. And the cloud of glory is associated with the ascension and the coming of Christ also. Now, friends, we come here to the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, verse 13, and we have the doom of the second woe. And we are now in the time of the blowing of the sixth trumpet. We've had that, and now this is that interval, a lull between the woe. These are woe trumpets, and the second woe was connected with the sixth trumpet. And it's a great earthquake. And I read in verse 13, and I'm using my translation as usual, "...and in that hour there came to pass a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell." And 7,000 names of men were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, this is a number of those slain that's to be added to the fourth that were slain at first. That is, a fourth of the population of the world, and then a third of the population of the world, over half, and now 7,000 more. Little wonder that the Lord Jesus said, except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. Now, the earthquake here seems to be limited to the city of Jerusalem, just as it was when Christ rose from the dead. Now, it says that 7,000 names of men were killed. Well, that's an idiom to indicate that they were men of prominence. And they are the ones that had gone along with Antichrist among God's people. Men whose name got in the headlines when Antichrist came to power. We come now to the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. That's verse 14. And this ends the second woe. The third woe begins shortly, though not immediately. The third woe is not the blowing of the seventh trumpet. That'll come next, as that leads us beyond the great tribulation into the millennium. The seventh trumpet likewise opens up to us the seven personalities of chapters 12 and 13. And the third woe begins when Satan, one of the personalities, is cast down to earth. And we'll see that when we come to it in Revelation 12, 12. Now we have here the seventh trumpet and the end of the great tribulation and the opening of the temple in heaven. Here in the middle of all of the woes and the judgments of the great tribulation, this is inserted for the encouragement of the believers that will be left on the earth, those that were sealed because you're apt to get very much discouraged with several years, although the total length of the Great Tribulation is not but seven years, and the intensity of it breaks in the last half 
of that period. It doesn't seem long to read about it. But I find seven days in the hospital to be the most trying experience of life, and I thought those days would never end. And you do need a little encouragement as you go along. Now let me read, and I'm going to package this here and put together verses 15 through 18, and I'm going to read it in my translation. I hope you are following in your Bible, authorized version, by the way. And the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and there followed, or came to pass, great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world, of the cosmos, is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign unto the ages of the ages, that is, forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders sitting before God on their throne fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and didst reign, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath came, and the time or the period of the dead to be judged, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, the small and great, and to destroy those who destroy are corrupt, the destroyers of the earth. The blowing here of the seventh trumpet is of utmost significance, and it's of special relevance in the understanding of the remainder of this book. In the program of God, it brings us chronologically to the breathtaking entrance of eternity, where the mystery of God is finally unraveled. And it brings us in God's program as far as Revelation 21, where eternity begins. Now, the broad outline of events which are significant to God is given to us here by the Holy Spirit. This section is a summary, a syllabus, or a capsule synopsis of events up to the door of eternity. And I think if we will more or less focus on these events, you will understand what we're talking about. Now, first of all here, there were great voices in heaven at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Now, you'll remember at the opening of the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Now, here, what a contrast. Because here, the blowing of the seventh trumpet reveals God's program, clears up the mystery of God and all of God's created intelligences, can see the end now and are jubilant in anticipation of the termination of evil being so close at hand. That's a time of joy for them. And then the kingdom of the world. And you notice in my translation, I put it like that. Why? Because that's what it is. Now, it's not kingdoms. It's kingdom. It denotes the fact that the kingdoms of this world are at present under Satan. They all are. And to them there's no distinction of nations, no east or west, no iron curtain. All are his. Both sides are included in his domain. A great many people think that Satan's controlling Russia today, 
but that the Lord is controlling the United States and angels are hovering over the Capitol at Washington. May I say to you, those angels may not be God's angels that are hovering over Washington today. Doesn't look like it. But actually, today, all the kingdoms of this world are His. And so it's called the kingdom and not kingdoms of the world. Now, it's the totality of a civilization and society of which men boast of self-improvement, but which becomes more godless and wicked each day. It's a condemned civilization that's moving to judgment. And it's going to become the kingdom of Christ someday. And it says of our Lord and his Christ, this kingdom is going to be subdued someday, not by some little sweet saccharine talk on brotherhood and love. It's going to be brought to him, and he's going to rule because we're told in Scripture, the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. And the early church understood that that was the condition of the world. They quoted that when persecution broke out in the early church. And you will find that in Acts, the fourth chapter, verses 23 to 26. And then in Psalm 2, 9 we read, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, we're going to see the details of what's given here in this section when we get to the 19th chapter of Revelation. And he's coming to put down rebellion. You can see, therefore, the seventh trumpet is moving along step by step towards eternity. Now we're told that the 24 elders sitting before God, they begin to worship, fall upon their faces. In other words, this is the church in heaven. It causes the church in heaven to worship and to celebrate the coming of Christ to the earth. This will be the answer of our prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then the nations were angry. Now that reveals the fact that the stubborn rebellion of man will be right down to the very end, right down to the wire. The stubborn heart of man is in rebellion against God. And this old nature, this carnal nature that you and I have, it's not obedient to God. Friends, you couldn't even make this old nature that you and I have. You couldn't make it obedient to God. I don't care what you do. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You just couldn't bring this old nature under. That's the reason he's going to get rid of it someday. And that someday is coming. It says here, the nations were angry. Because why? The wrath of God has come. They've been fed all this putrid pablum today about the fact that God never intends to punish sin and that man's getting better and better every day, while all the time he's getting worse and worse. Now, the sixth thing I note here, and the time of the dead to be judged. Now, that brings us to the great white throne judgment 
we're going to see in the 20th chapter. And then we read, "...and to give the reward to your servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, the small and the great." Now, the church has already gone into his presence. The believers there have already been rewarded. We saw the crowns on the heads of the elders. Now, these are Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, that are included in the first resurrection, but at a different time. And they are now going to be rewarded as the kingdom begins. And also, he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And that's both man and Satan, for man is a destroyer as well as Satan is. And we're warned today, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, that brings us down to verse 19, and I shall read it. And we read here, "...and the sanctuary..." The temple of God in heaven was open. Now, when we see the church again, it'll be in the new Jerusalem. And we're told definitely there's no temple there. So, here there is a temple in heaven. And that temple that Moses made was made after the pattern in heaven. But the church goes to the new Jerusalem. That'll be our eternal abode. That's our heaven. And it's going to be heaven, friends in spite of the fact that you and I are going to be there. Now, I read, "...in the sanctuary of God, or the temple of God in heaven was opened." And that means that God is dealing now with Israel. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his sanctuary, in his temple. And there followed lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and great hail. Now, that confirms again that there's a literal temple in heaven. That's important. Now, this sanctuary, a temple of God in heaven, not only does that, but it was open. And that indicates worship and access to God. All of this points to the nation Israel. The church has no temple. The measuring of the temple on earth and the opening of the temple in heaven declares the prominence of Israel in this section. And the next chapter will substantiate this. Now, the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His sanctuary. It reminds us that we're dealing with a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And He's going to keep the covenants He's made with Israel, and He'll make a new covenant with them at this time. That is, the law will be written in their hearts instead instead of cold tablets of stone. Now, I come down where it says lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and great hail that speak of judgment that's yet to come. And this opens up for us now, actually, chapter 12. We move now to chapter 12. And those of you that have our books, you will have to pick up volume 2 now if you want to follow our study along in the book. But if you have your Bible, why, just follow along here as we come to chapter 12. And here you have the final conflict between Israel and Satan after he's cast out of heaven. And seven performers are introduced to us by this seventh trumpet that is blown during the great tribulation period. 
And we find here the woman is the first, the red dragon second, the child of the woman. And then we have Michael, the archangel. And then the dragon persecutes the woman. And then we have the remnant of Israel here. We have six that are introduced to us. And then the next chapter, 13, we'll see the two beasts that are presented to us. These are the seven that we have. Although the seventh trumpet of chapter 11 brings us through the great tribulation and the millennium to the very threshold of eternity, you see a great deal of detail was omitted. So beginning with chapter 12, this will be compensated for in the presentation of seven prominent personages who play a dominant part in the great tribulation period. You have here after that the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath and then the final destruction of commercial Babylon and religious Babylon. Now, the prominence of the nation Israel is brought before us. It was suggested in the previous chapter with the measuring of the temple on earth and the opening of the temple in heaven. And the last verse that we read of chapter 11 is the opening to this chapter here. Now, these seven personages are representatives of persons, both natural and supernatural, physical and spiritual, rulers and nations. And the identification and clarification of these is essential for a proper understanding of the revelation. And let me then take up the very first one, and that will illustrate what we're talking about. And we've come now, actually, to the crux of the interpretation of the entire book of Revelation. And it revolves about this point. I heard an outstanding minister, very intellectual minister, years ago make the statement that if you tell me your interpretation of the woman in the 12th chapter of Revelation and I'll tell you your interpretation of prophecy. And I thought, my, how foolish that man was. Well, let me today make this statement. You tell me what your interpretation of this woman is, and I'll tell you your interpretation of prophecy. I believe that this is the key. Let me read it now in my translation. And a great sign was seen in heaven a woman arrayed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and travailing in birth and being tormented to be delivered. Now we have here in the authorized version, it goes like this. And by the way, a Scotch preacher got in trouble, not by reading this verse, but by the way that he read it, the emphasis he put. And he read it like this. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman. And my friend, that's not the way to read it. And that's not the way that John intended for us to read it. But the important thing here is, who is the woman? Well, you're acquainted with the interpretation of Rome that it represents the Virgin Mary. Well, there are Protestant interpreters that have been as far wrong as that today actually most of them just follow the tradition of Rome and 
interpret the woman as the church of all ages. And that's, I think, even worse. Practically all denominational literature follows this line. Now, there have been several female founders of cults. They couldn't resist the temptation of seeing themselves pictured in the woman. And Joanna Southcott said that she was the woman in Revelation 12. And in October 1814, she would have the man-child. But she never did. But she had 200,000 followers. And we've had in this country several founders of cults and religions that have thought they were. We have had, even in Southern California, a few female preachers that got the idea they might be the woman. But they weren't. I think we can dismiss all these claims unless we want to forsake all intelligent approach to the interpretation. Now, the identifying marks of the woman, the sun, moon, and stars, and these belong to Israel as seen in Joseph's dream. Let me read it. He dreamed yet another dream, told it to his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father, to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee in the earth? You see, the woman is a sign in heaven, though her career is on earth. She's not a literal woman here. She's a symbol. The career of the woman corresponds to that of Israel, for it's Israel that gave birth to Christ, who is the child. Now, I want you to notice some scriptures. I trust in the right light that we might understand them. I know that all of us do this at Christmas time. We use Isaiah 9, 6, as well as other verses concerning the birth of Christ. And actually, it does concern the birth of Christ, but doesn't concern us at all, because it concerns the nation Israel. It says, "...for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." Now, who is us? Now, I know that's wrong grammar, but that's what I mean. Who is referred to here? When it says, unto us the church, no, the nation Israel. It's quite obvious that Isaiah was speaking to the nation Israel. And he's speaking to the nation Israel, not relative to a savior, but a governor, a ruler, a king, one that was to come and rule over them. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it's interesting, the child is born is humanity, but he was the son from eternity, and he was given. Now, it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. We're talking now not about the Savior that we talk about today, but the one who's coming as king. We're going to see that in this book. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that's interesting. There won't be any peace till he comes. Because when they say, that is, the rulers of this world say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Why, you know, they were having a big peace congress in Holland when World War I broke out, and most of the delegates 
almost got fired on before they got home. May I say to you, when they say peace and safety, it's idle because man is working at peace from the wrong end. It's the human heart that's wrong. And only Jesus will bring peace. He's the prince of peace. Now, it's talking to Israel here. Unto us a child is born. And that's the figure that John picks up. And the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews seven fourteen, "...for it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah." And Paul in Romans 9, 5 says, "...whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came?" He's talking about Israel, because he began by asking the question, "...who are Israelites?" Well, they just happened to be that concerning the flesh, Christ came. The woman at the well was accurate. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And then we have in Micah 5, 2 and 3, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that's to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. You see, he'll be born in Bethlehem, but he comes out of eternity. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And travailing in birth is associated with Israel in Isaiah 66, 7 and 8. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before a pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. But it had to be the birth of that son first. And so we identify the woman as the nation Israel. And no woman that has lived or ever lived fits in this, even including the Virgin Mary. It's the nation, Israel, and certainly not the church of all ages. Because if we'll just keep our bearing here and not lose our heads, we are in the great tribulation period. And the church has already gone to heaven. This woman is not the church of all ages. Now... She is tormented, and certainly this nation has suffered satanic anti-Semitism from that day till the present. In fact, even before that day, because Satan knew that it would be from this nation. Now, we have introduced to us another character, and this character is really not a delightful one at all. It's the Red Dragon. This is not a funny paper characterization either. Nothing funny about him. In fact, it's very solemn and serious. I'm reading my translation, verses 3 and 4. And there was seen another sign in heaven. You notice these are signs that are given to us. And they're not literal. I told you John would make it clear as he went along. If he's giving you a symbol, he'll make it clear in some way to you that that's what it is. There was another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. 
And those are kingly crowns, by the way. And his tail draweth the third of the stars of heaven, and he did cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman about to be delivered, and when she was delivered, that he might devour her child. Now, this is a sign that sets before us the red dragon, and the red dragon is Satan. You're going to say, how do you know that? Well, I know that, because verse 9 will identify him. And I'm reading verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So that we can identify this character without speculating at all. Now, in this second sign, the true character of Satan is revealed with all the wrappings removed. He is great here. We're told that he's the great red dragon. He's great. And he's great because of his vast power. He controls the nations of the world and offered them to the Lord Jesus if he'd worship him, because that finally is what Satan wants is worship. And he offered the kingdoms of this world. He said, they're mine, and they are his. And he controls them today. We've already seen that. In that day, it was Rome. But he's controlled every nation, you see. Now, it says he's red. And because of the fact that he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44 tells us that. He has no regard for human life. And why so many today serve him? Why is it that alcohol finally kills you? It's the worst killer there is today. Well, because Satan is back of it, friends. He has no regard for human life at all. Now, he's called a dragon. Why? Because of the viciousness of his character. He was originally created Lucifer's son of the morning. But he's now the epitome of evil and the depth of degradation. The most dangerous being in all of God's creation, your enemy and my enemy, if we're a child of God's. Now, we're going to be introduced later on in chapter 13 to a beast. And the beast in chapter 13 similar to the dragon. Why? Because we're going to see that it's the dragon there that brings out the beast. We'll see that when we get to it, and I'll say that until then. Now, he has seven heads. I think that suggests the perfection of wisdom, which characterized the creation of Satan, who was originally the covering cherub. And in Ezekiel 28, 12, which speaks of his origin. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. And he's put as the figure there of Satan. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And this reveals two of the fallacies that the world has concerning Satan. They think he's ugly. May I say to you, he was created perfect in beauty. And if you could see him today, you wouldn't see the foul creature that is pictured for us today by the world. 
even on a bottle of water that is sold today for certain purposes. There is that being Satan, and he has horns, he has cloven feet, he has a forked tail. That's the great god Pan that the Greeks worshipped and Rome worshipped. That's not Satan, although Satan was back of that worship. And you find that temple in Pergamum. I've seen that temple in the ruins of the different temples to the great god Pan in, I suppose, a dozen cities. He was certainly worshipped. It's not strange today that men are worshipping him. When they won't have God, they'll certainly take him. But he's smart. He's clever. He's wise. You and I are no match for him at all. And you and I will be overcome if we try to go forth in our own strength against him. And he's not only beautiful, but he's full of wisdom. That's the way he's presented. He has ten horns, and I think that suggests the final division of the Roman Empire, which is dominated by Satan, and which is his final effort to rule the world. And this fits into that picture. And the crowns on the horns, not on the heads, since it is delegated power, are from Satan. And the crowns represent kingly authority and rulership. And the third part of the stars of heaven follow him. That speaks of his rebellion. Daniel makes reference to this. And the dragon hates the man-child that the woman has. And we're told in Genesis 3.15, the beginning of it, I'll put enmity between thee, that is Satan, the dragon, and the woman, and between thy seed, Satan, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head Thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, we get a view of the child of the woman here. And in verses 5 and 6, why the child of the woman is introduced to us. And I'm reading from my translation. And she was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to shepherd or to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We've seen that now in Psalm 2, 9. And her child was caught up under God and his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. This world is a wilderness. Israel was scattered throughout the world. Where she hath a place prepared of God, and there they may nourish her a thousand two hundred and sixty days. And during the intense part of the great tribulation period, why Israel will be protected of God that is, this remnant of Israel. And I would like to say this. There are those that say so dogmatically today that Israel will go to the rock-hewn city of Petrid, and there's where Israel will be preserved because no enemy can get in. But the enemy now comes from the top and drops down bombs. And that's the last place I would want to be when bombs start falling is in that rock-hewn city of Petrid. Very candidly, to make that dogmatic statement today, along with clear-cut prophecies, is certainly deceiving people. If you want to say that, and I don't mind saying it, I don't know where the place will be, and I personally feel like it could be this place, but let's say we don't know. And it won't hurt a lot of us preachers today to say we don't know when we don't know. 
I read a book on Antichrist the other day. And this fellow, it took him about 125 pages to say what I can say in one sentence. But he wrote 125 pages. I don't know who is Antichrist. He didn't either, my friend. He didn't either. Today, to be so dogmatic about that which is not revealed is, to my judgment, tragic. Now, I don't think that we ought to say dogmatically. If you want to say it, I don't object to it, provided you say, that's my judgment, I think that it'll be. But you don't have Scripture for that, you know, except speculative Scripture. Now, will you notice, we're told here that the child, I think, is Christ. I think by now, that's quite evident. And he's easily identified here. And I hope that no one will fall into the error of equating the child with the church. And many have done that, by the way. Now, he's the shepherd to rule all the nations with the rod of iron as a clear-cut reference to Christ. We quoted Psalm 2.9, He shall break them with the rod of iron. Again, that was quoted by the early church. And it was quoted as referring to the day that began with the persecution of the church. But he's going to finally come to power. Now, I do want us to notice something that is very important here. We see him as the one who is to shepherd or rule the nations with a rod of iron. He is the one that is coming in David's line to sit on David's throne and to rule this world. And he will put down all enmity, all opposition, all rebellion on the earth. How? Well, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, if you have a better way, if this peace crowd would only come up with a program that would work, then it wouldn't be necessary to put down rebellion with a bit of violence, by the way. There's no other way to put it down. How do you think Jesus Christ is going to come to power in a rebellious world? Suppose he suddenly appeared at the capital of any nation in the world. Do you think they're prepared to surrender to him and turn it over to him? And that includes our own country. Is America today prepared to yield to Jesus Christ? And if you say yes, I'll have to say then, why don't they? They can yield to him today. Well, the world's in rebellion against him. And the only way that God knows of taking it over is to put down that rebellion. Now, maybe you or some of the peace crowd, if you belong to it, and you don't like the shedding of blood, it makes you sick, nauseates you, and you just hate violence and war, and don't we all? But the interesting thing is, this is the only way that you can put it down. And he's going to rule. That's the important thing here. Now, her child was caught up unto God in his throne. Now, that speaks of the ascension of Christ. He ascended into heaven. Witnesses saw him caught up into heaven. And today, we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, remember that this book is the unveiling 
of the ascended Christ. And the book of the Revelation rests upon the fact of the ascension. Christ is the one who has opened the seals of the book that has led to all that has followed since then. And we're told that she brought forth a man-child. And I think that settles the identity of the woman. Israel is clearly the one from whom Christ came. Who are Israelites? Whom is concerning the flesh? Christ came. Now, in the Gospels, you have the emphasis upon the death of Christ. In the epistles, you have the emphasis upon the resurrection of Christ. In the book of Revelation, you have the emphasis upon the ascension of Christ. And I would say that Protestantism, and especially fundamentalism, has ignored the ascension of Christ. That's one reason that we have not had such a great emphasis in fundamental circles upon the present ministry of Christ. And it's the reason we've emphasized it so these past five years in this program. And we need to recognize that. Let me turn to one or two passages of Scripture. Acts 1, 9 and 11. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Now, that is a reference to the ascension of Christ. And remember that this book is the unveiling of the ascended Christ, the glorified Christ, the coming Christ, the Christ who's coming in glory. And the book of Revelation rests upon the fact of the ascension. And he's the one that's been opening the seals that's brought to pass everything since then, and certainly this particular section. And we are told today in Hebrews 12 to looking unto Jesus. Where? The one who walked in Galilee? No. We know him no longer after the flesh, Paul says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if you think that means he's twiddling in his thumbs, and that's the impression a great many have, why, it's because you don't know Revelation. You and I need to study Revelation because he's not sitting and doing nothing. He's going to do a great deal because of his ascension into heaven, and he has a present ministry today with the church, of course. Now, will you notice, it says she brought forth a man-child, and I think that settles the identity of the woman. Israel is clearly the one from whom Christ came. The church came from him, but he, according to the flesh, came from Israel. And that, again, let me say, in Romans 9, 4, and 5, Paul first says, "...who are Israelites?" And he puts down several fingerprints, and one of them is, "...whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came." 
So that is what we have here. And we're told in Galatians 4, 4, 5, "...but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law." What law? The Mosaic law. Who had the Mosaic law? Israel. He came, made, or born under the law. Why? Because he was an Israelite. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And again in Galatians, this time the third chapter, verse 16, "...now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ." So God said to Abraham, before the nation came into existence, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through that nation I'm sending a seed. Not many now, but one, and that one is Christ, Paul says. And we've already seen in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verse 6, "...and unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." Us there, U.S., doesn't mean the United States. Some seem to think so. But unto us is Israel. Isaiah was an Israelite. He's speaking to that nation. He just wasn't speaking either to the church or to the Gentiles. He was speaking to Israel. And us means the nation Israel. All right, now let me drop down and identify another character here. And this time, it's Michael the archangel, and he wars with the dragon. Now, let me read verses 7 through 12 here, and I'm reading from my translation as usual. And there arose war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon. And the dragon warred in his angels, and they prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, the one called the devil, and the Satan, he that deceiveth the whole inhabited world, he was cast down to the earth, and his angels with him were cast down. Now, we have here a startling revelation. War in heaven. And the United Nations couldn't do anything about this war any more than they could any other war that's taken place since they came into existence. It's difficult to imagine that there's war in heaven. But Satan still has access to heaven. And as long as he does, there'll be this problem. We are told in the book of Job that Satan came with the sons of God before God. He had apparently right there as much as they did. He'd been created the highest creation. And you will recall that when we studied Zechariah in the third chapter, in the first seven verses, we have that. And I read verse 1 and 2 of Zechariah 3 again. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? We have him 
having access to God. He's able to carry on communication with God. Now, again, in Luke 22, verse 31, and I'd like to turn and read that. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I don't think he sent a Western Union telegram to God. I don't think he telephoned him. He was able to come in the presence of God, and he requested that he might test this man, Simon Peter. He believed that he could get him. Well, he was granted that permission. Now, Michael here is the archangel, and I'd have you note that. We're told that in the book of Jude, verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. I'm sure there must be other archangels, but if you go back to the book of Daniel, you will find that uh, Michael is mentioned there. And I want to turn back and see that he has a peculiar ministry with the nation Israel. First of all, if you'll notice the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel, verse 13, I read this, "...but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So apparently the other archangels, but he's the one that's introduced to us, and Gabriel, and they're the only ones I know about, by the way. Now, in verse 21 of this chapter, we are told here, "...but I will show thee that which is noted in the Scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these but Michael, your prince." He's talking to Daniel, and that means Daniel's people, and they were the nation Israel. And Daniel makes that clear in the 12th chapter, verse 1 of Daniel. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And at that time we're told it'll be a time of trouble. That's the great tribulation that we're talking about here. And Michael again steps out and drives Satan out of heaven. Why? Because of the fact he happens to be the prince that watches over the nation Israel. This is a tremendous thing, and it beggars description, by the way. Now, I read here, there was a fierce struggle and a war. He's not going to retire easily. But Michael and his angels prevailed, and Satan and his angels were thrown out of heaven. And the Lord Jesus referred to this in the verse we gave the other day in Luke ten eighteen. He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, there's no mistaking this creature who's called the great dragon. For he's marked out now with great detail. His fingerprints are put down here. And because God knew what a great percentage of the preachers of this century would teach that he does not exist, he makes it so you can't miss him. If your 
enemy can get you to think he does not exist, he'll have a tremendous advantage over you. And he'll be able to get a crack at you that'll sweep you off your feet. And therefore, Satan has moved in afresh and anew in this generation. Why? Well, simply because this generation didn't believe in him. Now we're getting an overdose of him. And it's been made a weird and wild thing. He's not an ugly creature by any means. He's an angel of light. Now notice how he's identified. Here he's called the old serpent. That takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Our Lord said he was a murderer from the beginning. And the words old and beginning are akin, according to Vincent. And he is that old serpent, the one that was at the beginning there in the Garden of Eden. Now he's called devil, and the devil is a name which comes from the Greek diabolos, meaning slanderer or accuser. He's so labeled in verse 10, the accuser of our brethren. Now that's the reason that believers today need an advocate with the Father. You and I have an enemy today, and not only causing us problems down here, But you'd be surprised what he says about you and me in heaven. And there's nothing that you do or say or think but what he doesn't return it in against you up yonder. But God already knows about it, and I like to beat him to the draw and confess it before he gets up there to bring the accusation. The Lord Jesus is our advocate. We're told in 1 John 2, 1, And I read here, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. Be wonderful if I didn't sin, but I do. And if any man sin, thank God we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's up there to defend me. And he's been kept busy since I've been in this world defending me. And I have a notion he's been pretty busy with you too, my friend. Don't think he's up there sitting idly by He's our defender, our advocate. Why? Because the devil is a slanderer. He's a liar from the beginning. And that's where the lies today begin. All the gossip that goes on in some of our churches today. Where does it originate? In the pit of hell, friends. And that's the last place that anything that's in the church, it ought not to be shipped in from down there. Now, will you notice he's also called Satan. That means adversary. He's the awful adversary of God and every one of God's children. God's children today in the church. He's our adversary. And we're told, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's 1 Peter 5, 8. Now, I've read to you several letters recently, and I did it purposely, of people who have been delivered out of cults and isms through the study of the Word of God. And I've had any number of people that have told me personally of how they were trapped. In fact, I have a letter here, which I have not shared. A man, he apologizes. He said, I was in a cult, and I wrote you the letter I did, and it was a mean one to try to trap you, try to trick you. And I thought I was right and you were wrong. And he said, when I began to study the Word of God, why, he said, I didn't realize how Satan had me trapped. He's got a lot of folks trapped today 
even church members. We need to recognize that he is our enemy. But that doesn't mean let's go overboard just dwelling on Satan and demons today. There's too much of that. We need to recognize them and that there's a manifestation uh, fresh and anew that was not a generation ago. But it's certainly true today. Let's keep our eye on Jesus Christ, please, friends. For that's your place of deliverance. He's up there to help you, you know. And he says, "...he that deceiveth the whole inhabited world." Satan, during the Great Tribulation, will be able to totally deceive man. But today, only partially. And Satan deceives man relative to God and of the Word of God. You remember, he had Eve to distrust God. Has God said, you shouldn't eat of that tree? You just can't trust him, can you? That was the thought. And then Satan deceives man relative to man. He makes him out better than he is, yet Satan despises us. And yet, he builds us up. We could become gods. How wonderful it would be. And then Satan deceives man relative to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, you and I think we're big enough to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're not big enough to overcome any one of them. The world is too big for us. And it will certainly draw you away from him. And Satan deceives the world relative to the gospel. He doesn't mind men going to church or even joining a dozen churches, but he doesn't want him to be saved. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Now, Satan is to be dreaded as a lion. He's more to be dreaded as a serpent, and he's most to be dreaded as an angel of light. That's where he traps multitudes today. Now, friends, we come to verse 10 and 12. I'm going to read them together here in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. And as we read here, I want you to note that we are coming to the third woe. And the third woe is really a woe, let me tell you. And I'm reading now, beginning at verse 10. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, that is, exousion, power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, the one accusing them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe for the earth and for the sea, because the devil is gone down unto you having great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. Now, John says here, and I heard. And this reminds us that John is still the spectator and auditor of these events. He doesn't want us to forget that because it's very important. 
And we saw last time that Satan was cast out of heaven. Now, it caused great rejoicing there among the redeemed that were in heaven. And we see here that there is a great company of Old Testament saints, or the tribulation saints, or both, who have been martyred up to this point. And they mention their brethren on the earth. You'll notice the accuser of our brethren is cast down. And I think the first great demonstration of power exerted against evil after the death and resurrection of Christ is the casting out of Satan from heaven. That's the beginning of the movement that will lead to the Lord Jesus taking over the reins of government down here. Now, when Christ died on the cross, he paved the way for Satan being cast out of heaven. Listen to the language of Colossians 2, 14 and 15, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And that's what he did. He made it possible for man now to be saved by his death, and that man could no longer attempt to work out salvation in his own power and in his own strength. He just wouldn't be able to do it at all. And not only that, we're told, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. I personally believe that began when he ascended into heaven and took that great company with him, led captivity captive, and took them into the presence of God. Those were the Old Testament saints. And I think they're in this group now that are saying that salvation has come. And what is it? It opens the way for the coming of four great blood-bought heavenly freedoms. Now, we talk about four freedoms down here, which have not yet come to pass. Well, here are four freedoms that are going to come to pass when Christ comes, the salvation, the consummation of it. And that is the person of Christ. And you and I will not have our salvation consummated until we're in his presence. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him when we see him. And that will be true when he comes to the earth down here. And this speaks, I think, here of his visible return to the earth and the power You see, the nations today have handled power, and it has been tragic. And that's been true of every great nation. Some great nations have been able to make war. And like a great forest fire or a prairie fire, they spread across another nation, destroying cities and killing people. And that power nations have abused down here and It'll be wonderful when he takes the power and controls this earth. And then the third great freedom is, and the kingdom our God is going to be established here upon the earth. Not until then will there be peace and will there be righteousness and freedom on this earth. We don't really know what freedom is today. 
I found out in this land that's the home of the free and the brave. There are not many brave left, and I don't know that there are many free that are left today. I find out I have to stand in line everywhere I go today. Oh, there's no freedom in that. I can't imagine back in the early colonies anybody standing in line to get anything or do anything. But believe me, today we do. And it'll be wonderful when his kingdom comes on this earth. Now, that very statement reveals that the kingdom was not established at the first coming of Christ. And then there's something else here. That's the fourth freedom. And it's the authority of his Christ. And that shows that Christ has not yet taken over the governmental authority of this world. He's not building a kingdom today. He's not establishing his kingdom today. You wait till he starts moving. And all of these judgments are in preparation for his return to the earth. There's always a note of grace in the judgment of God. And giving man here a warning and an opportunity to turn to him. And multitudes will, as we've seen. Now we're told that the one accusing them day and night before our God is now cast out of heaven. Now that reveals that this is part of the present strategy of Satan, which attempts to thwart Christ's purposes with his church today and the tribulation saints tomorrow. And this necessitates Christ's present ministry as an advocate for us. Now we have here the victory for the accused saints comes through three avenues that are mentioned to us in this section that I've read to you. First is the blood of the Lamb. There is wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And don't you forget that, and let's not minimize that. The many references to the blood of the Lamb necessitate it being there on display. And this is not a crude conception. It's rather the crudities in our sins that made it necessary for him to shed his blood. And friends, if you and I get any victory, it'll be because he shed his blood for you and me. You and I will never, never be able to lead what people call today the victorious life. The most defeated people I've ever met as a pastor have been people who are supposedly living the victorious life. I don't know why this is true. All of them look anemic to me. They look to me like they are fugitives from a blood bank. My, they are shallow and sallow looking. They need a blood transfusion. <laughs> they don't live the victorious life. He does. And if we overcome, it'll be through the blood of the Lamb. Now, the second way is the word of their testimony. It reveals that they were true martyrs. Those who are Christ cannot deny him. He made that very clear. Whosoever shall deny me before man, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Matthew ten thirty three. And friends, it's the word of their testimony. There is something that is strengthening in giving a testimony. Now, don't misunderstand me. Many of you know that I do not buy all this giving testimonies today that we have. Some of them are pretty shallow. Some of them are given by those who ought not to be giving testimonies. 
because the people close to them know them, and it makes them rather cynical, and it makes them rather skeptical, and rightly so. There's so many instances that we could give. Now, the place to give you testimony is not before the well-fed church banquet, where all the saints say amen to everything you say. The place to give you testimony is out yonder in the world, friend, when you're up against that godless, blaspheming crowd, to let them know that you belong to Christ and that you're in Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And there's something strengthening in that. There's something that makes a man stand up tall when he can give a testimony like that. And I know a man in business today. He's a great big double-fisted fella, and he is an executive in a concern, a very hard-hitting concern, too, let me tell you. And there are a lot of blaspheming folk around him. And, you know, when he hears someone blaspheming, he always, in a very quiet manner, tells about He said, you know, I'd like to tell you what Jesus Christ means to me. My, the Lord Jesus said, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And these are the true martyrs. The word martus means witness. These are the ones that witness for. And then the next thing is, they love not their life even unto death. And that, my friend, is an exalted plane to come to. When you and I make the Lord Jesus the first love in our life and love of self, we can put it down second, third, fourth, or somewhere else. But sure, we ought to have respect for ourselves. There ought to be a dignity about us. But let's put him first. And when we put him first, we'll not have any problem, you see, in living for him down here. The great problem today is not the set of rules that are being given. They are no good, of course, as far as anything back of them is concerned. Here's what you need back of them is the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony. And then it's to love him above everything else. And that's the very basis of service. He said to Simon Peter, do you love me? And when Simon Peter finally could come through on a weak plane, the Lord Jesus said, then I'm going to use you. You're going to feed my sheep. You're going to preach the first sermon in the church. You're going to see more people saved per capita of those that were there than probably any time in the history of the world. Now, will you notice there are two radical views of the casting out of Satan from heaven that we have here. There is rejoicing in heaven for this awesome, treacherous, dangerous, and deadly serpent is out forever. And then there's woe on the earth. And this is the third woe, which extends through the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. And the only consolation for the earth is that Satan's sojourn on earth is brief. Forty-two months, and it's an intensification of tribulation during this period. Now we see when Satan is cast to the earth, he persecutes the woman. And we have that in verses 13 and 14 here. In fact, 
all the way through 16. But let me read the first two verses, 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into a place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, this is the last wave of anti-Semitism that'll roll over the world, and it's the worst, because Satan is cast down to the earth, and he knows his time is short. And he hates this nation because Christ came from that nation according to the flesh. And this is the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's the reason I cannot rejoice, never been able to rejoice in the present return of Israel back to that land. Some people seem to think they're going back for the millennium. They're not. They're going back for the great tribulation period if they're going back for any purpose at all, according to the Word of God. Now, we are told here that there are two wings of an eagle given to her that she might fly into the wilderness. Now, there are those that see in this the airplane that's going to take them to their hiding place, and they always pick the rock-hewn city of Petra as being that place. Now, I don't know how an airplane would land in that place, but that's the problem of those that give that explanation. Now, will you notice, though, that two wings of a great eagle is not something that is unusual or peculiar to these people at all. That's reminiscent of the grace of God in delivering Israel in the past from Egypt. You remember God said to them in Exodus 19:4, "...ye have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself." You see, they had not come out by their own effort or by their own ability. They came out because God brought them out. And eagle wings became a symbol to them. And here again in the great tribulation, Israel cannot deliver themselves, and no one is interested in delivering them. But God will get them out on eagles' wings by His grace. I'd like to refer you to a book I have. The title of it is On Eagles' Wings. And you can see how this has worked in the past in the life of this nation. Now it says, "...into the wilderness under her place." Now, it doesn't say the rock-hewn city of Petra. Could be. I don't, don't misunderstand me. I just simply don't know where it is, and I'm disturbed when somebody else finds it before I do. And I don't know how in the world they found it. Now, it's been variously identified. Petra's not the only place. The wilderness of the peoples of the world, that it'll be another worldwide scattering of them. Well, Christ said, "...flee unto the mountains." We believe it to be a literal wilderness, possibly the same one in which Israel spent 40 years under Moses. And this time it will be 42 months, for that's the meaning of time, times, and half a time here. The important thing is not the place, but the fact that God will protect them by His grace. Now, where she's nourished, that reminds us, that in the past God sustained them with manna from heaven and water from the rock, and he'll nourish them again in possibly the same way. Now in verses 15 and 16, and I'll read my translation here, 
and the serpent cast out of his mouth after the woman water as a river, that he might cause her to be carried away by the stream. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the river, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, in view of the fact that the wilderness is literal, the water also could be literal. God had delivered Israel out of the water, both at the beginning of the wilderness march, the Red Sea, and then again at the end of the wilderness march, the Jordan River. However, the floods of water could be armies flowing like a river upon them. This figure of speech has been used by Isaiah. And I'll not turn to it, but it's in Isaiah, the 8th chapter, verses 7 and 8. Now, in Ezekiel's picture of the last days, the king of the north is seen marching on Israel. How will he be stopped? No nation is there to stop him, but God is there, and he will destroy him with natural forces when he invades Palestine. Listen to Ezekiel 38:22. I will plead against him with pestilence, with blood. I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. That gives us an indication of what John is talking about here. Satan will use every means to destroy the people. Now, verse 17, the last verse in this chapter. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and he went away to make war with the rest of her seed that keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now, the rest of her seed referred to the remnant who is God's witness in this period, the 144,000 who've been sealed. They are evidently witnessing throughout the world. And these keep the commandments of God, which places them back under the law. And this precludes the possibility of the witnesses being the church. Now, all anti-Semitism is Satan-inspired, and it will finally culminate in Satan making a supreme effort to destroy this nation. From the brickyards of Pharaoh's Egypt, Haman's gallows, Herod's cruel edict, through Hitler, to the world of the Great Tribulation, Satan has led the attack against these people because of the man-child. Jesus Christ. 